Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2013 AWP conference in Boston. The recording features readings by Elise Passion, Frank Bedart, Askold Melnicek, Tom Slay, and Tracy K. Smith. You will now hear Elise Passion provide introductions. Welcome to our tribute to Seamus Heaney with Frank Bedart, Oscar Melichek, Tom Slay, and Tracy K. Smith. My name is Elise Passion. Thank you all for being here, and many thanks to Seamus and Mari Heaney for joining us today. Where's Mari? Mari, thank you, Seamus. Seamus Heaney, one of the major poets of our time. Seamus Heaney was born in Mossbond, County Derry, Northern Ireland. He is the author of more than 20 volumes of poetry, essays, translations, plays, and anthologies. His most recent books include Human Chain and District and Circle, winner of the T.S. Eliot Prize. In 1995, he received the Nobel Prize in Literature. In the early 1980s, Seamus Heaney left Ireland to begin teaching for part of the year at Harvard University. For 14 years, Heaney commuted between Dublin and Cambridge, offering spring semester poetry workshops at Harvard. We are a panel of friends, colleagues, and former students whose lives have been influenced and enriched by Seamus Heaney. Each of us will offer an homage to Seamus. Before I introduce our panel, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. I am a great admirer of Seamus Heaney and was fortunate to have studied with Seamus when I was in college. I'm the author of several poetry collections, including Bestiary and Infidelities, winner of the Nicholas Rorick Poetry Prize. I have edited and co-edited many anthologies, including Poetry in Motion and Poetry Speaks. Former executive director of the Poetry Society of America, I currently teach in the MFA writing program at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. And now let me introduce our panelists, starting from my left. Frank Bedart's numerous books include In the Western Night, Collected Poems, Desire, winner of the Bobbitt Prize for the Library of Congress, and most recently, Watching the Spring Festival. Bedart's many awards include the Bollingham Prize in American Poetry, the Shelley Memorial Award for the Poetry Society of America, and the Wallace Stevens Award. He teaches at Wellesley College. Oskold Melnicek, to my right, has published three novels and a novella. He has received a fellowship in fiction from the Lila Wallace Foundation, as well as the McGinnis Prize in Fiction. Founding editor of Agni, he is the publisher of Aerosmith Books, and he teaches at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Tracy K. Smith is the author of three books of poetry, Life on Mars, which was awarded the 2012 Pulitzer Prize, Duende, recipient of the James Laughlin Award, and The Body's Question, selected for the Kaveh Kanem Poetry Prize. She teaches creative writing at Princeton University. Tom Slay's many books include Army Cats and Spacewalk, winner of the Kingsley Tufts Award. He's received numerous prizes, including the PSA's Shelley Prize, Elila Wallace Individual Writers Award, and a Guggenheim Fellowship. 
He teaches at Hunter College and lives in Brooklyn. And now, please welcome Frank Bedart. Most of my comments are going to be uh, critical about the work, not anecdotal. But let me say it just a bit at the beginning about what an incredibly generous, profound presence Seamus was when he lived in the Cambridge community. Uh, he entered a world that very much had a lively poetry scene. And he participated in it and kept it together as the years went on. He was interested in everybody and everybody's work. And there was a kind of breadth of, uh, uh, and generosity of attention that was very extraordinary and uh, very wonderful. And those were extraordinary years. Years that had begun with Robert Lowell in Cambridge and then and then Elizabeth Bishop, and then Seamus continued the world that they had been part of, and if anything, widened it and deepened it. Uh, I, I know everybody who was part of that was very grateful for those years. I want to talk about what a great poet Seamus she, uh, she is. That's not news, um, but still, uh, you know, with every writer, one has to rediscover over and over again why he's to be taken seriously, why he is worthy of the kind of attention out of all the writers that are clamoring uh, for one's attention. And Seamus, uh, his, his work rewards that kind of look very profoundly. Uh, it, it, it's a, it's a, a work that is both intimate and personal and large scale in its in the issues with which, with which it deals and its take on them. What I want to do today really is look at how uh, or why his political or social poems work so well. They are among his greatest poems. And that's not true of many, many uh, contemporary poets, poets from the past. Uh, he's really in a line of Poets like Marvell, Yeats, Robert Lowell, uh, in, in which the gaze on the political world or social world is as profound and uh, ambitious as any subject matter he takes up. I'm going to mostly just talk, but I have a few sentences written down which I would like to, uh, to read. Well, first of all, I think these political or social poems are among his greatest. Uh, they constitute a vision of human life beyond sectarian positioning. And given the world in which uh, Seamus was writing uh, of conflict in Ireland, uh, that moving beyond sectarian positioning was very far from easy or automatic. I want to ask how their vision of human life is consistent with the vision of Heaney's other poems. The answer I have in mind is the way he sees political or social issues as proceeding from trajectories already present in the lives of the actors. The actors enact these trajectories. And the pattern that the intersection of these trajectories make has a kind of 
determined, fated quality, which makes them often, these poems often seem ultimately uh, tragic, and uh, there's something stoic about the eye that looks on these conflicts. Uh, and he is very much an actor in them, and I want to read uh, some passages in which he is, as an actor, has a character, and it's a he's on a trajectory just as they are on a trajectory. And uh, part of the profundity of the poetry is the way in which he sees these very different actions that people are engaged in and how they are not trivial actions or actions that simply proceed from a response to immediate circumstance, they proceed from character. I want to begin with uh, a section of his long poem, Station Island. And in this section, section eight, he, uh, and, uh, the whole of Station Island is a series of encounters with what he calls familiar ghosts. And these encounters are, in some sense, dream encounters. They are, in many ways, challenges uh, to uh, his ordinary uh, social self. I'm gonna, not read the whole of the beginning of this poem. In this section, uh, section eight, he meets two familiar ghosts. Uh, the first is an archaeologist who is dead. And he says, I came to the, uh, there uh, at the bed stone hub with my archaeologist, very like himself. And then um, he speaks to the archaeologist. Those dreamy stars that pulsed across the screen beside you in the ward. Your heart beats, Tom, I mean, scared me. The way they stripped things naked. My banter failed too early in that visit. I could not take my eyes off the machine. I had to head back straight away to Dublin, guilty and empty, feeling I had said nothing, and that as usual, I had somehow broken covenants and fails an obligation. I half knew we would never meet again. Did our long gaze and last handshake contain nothing to appease that recognition? And then Tom speaks, nothing at all. But familiar stone had me half numbed to face the thing alone. I loved my still-faced archaeology. The small crabapple physiognomies on high crosses, carved heads in abbeys. Why else dig in for years in that hard place in a muck of bigotry under the walls, picking through shards and Williamite cannonballs? But all that we just turned to banter, too. I felt that I should have seen far more of you and maybe would have a dead in 32. Ah, poet, poet, lucky poet. Tell me why what seemed deserved and promised passed me by. End quote. I could not speak. I saw a horde of black basalt axe heads, smooth as a beetle's back, a cairn of stone force that might detonate the eggs of danger. And then I saw a face he had once given me, a plaster cast of an abbess, 
done by the Gowran master, mild-mouthed and cowled, a character of grace. Your gift will be a candle in our house. And then this figure disappears and another ghost appears. But then, but he had gone when I looked to meet his eyes, and hunkering instead there in his place was a bleeding, pale-faced boy, plastered in mud. Quote, the red-hot pokers blazed a lovely red in chair point. The Sunday I was murdered, he said quietly. Now, do you remember? And then the speaker, Seamus, goes on. You were there with poets. No, I'm sorry. He's, he continues to speak. You were there with poets when you got the word and stayed there with them, while your own flesh and blood was carted to Balaki from the fuse. They showed more agitation in the news, the, at the news than you did. And then Seamus speaks again. They were getting crisis firsthand, column. They had happened in on live sectarian assassination. I was dumb encountering what was destined. And so I pleaded with my second cousin. I kept seeing a gray stretch of luff big and the strand empty at daybreak. I felt like the bottom of a dried up lake. You saw that, and you wrote that, not the fact. You confused evasion and artistic tact. The Protestant who shot me through the head, I accused directly. But indirectly, you, who now atoned perhaps upon this bed for the way you whitewashed ugliness and drew the lovely blinds of the purgatorio and saccharine my death with morning dew, unquote. Then I seemed to waken out of sleep among more pilgrims whom I did not know, drifting to the hostel for the night. Well, I think this is so wonderful. It's very hard to, uh, to talk after it. The more you know Seamus' work, you realize that when he uh, discusses, when he brings up with this ghost, who accuses him, he brings up a character that he has uh, described in many of the poems. And it's a position in relation to, to violence and uh, political uh, sectarianism that is much thought out. There's the sense in this poem, uh, and in all these poems, that the uh, person whose life was taken is um, as I said, on a trajectory that he can't change, that Seamus cannot change, Seamus cannot change the trajectory he is on. And there's a kind of destined constellation the two together make. Let me briefly read uh, the end of North in which he discusses the uh, way in which his character, his the decisions he has made uh, about how he responds to violence has to do with the way he's an artist and the kind of artist he is. He says at the end of Exposure, how did I end up like this? 
I often think of my friend's beautiful prismatic counseling and the anvil brains of some who hate me. As I sit, sit weighing and weighing my responsible tristia. For what? For the ear? For the people? For what is said behind backs? Rain comes down through the altars. Its low, conducive voices mutter about letdowns and erosions. And yet, each drop recalls the diamond absolutes. I am neither internee nor informer, an inner emigre, grown long-haired and thoughtful, a woodcurrent escaped from the massacre, taking protective coloring from bowl and bark, feeling every wind that blows, who blowing up these sparks for their meager heat, have missed the once-in-a-lifetime portent the comet's pulsing rose. Well, his sense that there's a price to the way in which he is a, not someone who becomes a partisan of sides. He's uh, not following or addicted to the diamond absolutes. And therefore, you know, there's something qualified about the apology he makes to Colin. Uh, it's an apology that is real, but at the same time, there's a, a stoic acceptance of the necessity of the position he has been in. I want to read, end by reading a short poem from Seamus's uh, most recent book, Human Chain, uh, which is very wonderful. Uh, the point I've been trying to make is that the vision in Seamus's poems has to do with forces positions that uh, collide, and he sees a kind of necessity in both. And this doesn't only have to do with people and personalities, it has to do with the nature of the world and the possibilities of the world. In this poem, it's called uh, The Baylor. It has to do with a vision of the world in which he sees these bales of hay, this, the, the, this field that has been gleaned and he sees it as abundance and richness uh, and an El Dorado. And then he recalls someone who, uh, who, when he sees the sun goes down, thinks about the price of that and how each day has to do with things dying, not only with abundance, but that the descent of the sun is, the, is a kind of harbinger of the death of individual life. Let me read the poem, and I, I, this is the last thing I'll do, the Baylor. Let me also say that, that often the, 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 uh, the counter-movement in a, a Shane's poem has to do with uh, this uh, quite marvelous feeling for the vernacular. So often the poems, they proceed out of this very impacted, dense language, but there will be suddenly a phrase that is marvelously spoken. Anyway, here it is, the Baylor. This is the last thing I'll do. All day the clunk of a baler ongoing cardiac dull. So taken for granted it was evening before I came to, to what I was hearing and missing. Summer's richest hours, as they had been to begin with 
pork lifted, sweated through, and nearly rewarded enough by the giddied up race of a tractor at the end of the day, last lapping a hayfield. But what I also remember, as wood pigeons assumed at the edge of 30 leaned acres, and I stood inhaling the cool in a dusk Eldorado of mighty cylindrical bales, was Derek Hills saying the last time he sat at our table, he could bear no longer to watch the sun going down, and asking please to be put with his back to the window. Thanks. Mm. During the fall of 1978, there was much talk about who would be offering poetry workshops at Harvard that spring. I was on the poetry board of the Harvard Advocate, and one of my friends told us that the college had hired a poet from Ireland named Seamus Heaney. Although Heaney had published Death of a Naturalist, Door into the Dark, Wintering Out, and North, only North had appeared in American editions. So we were not yet though we soon would become familiar with Seamus's work. We all clamored to get into his class. I was fortunate to be accepted into Heaney's English JB Poetry Workshop, one of the first classes he taught at Harvard as a guest lecturer in 1979. We would meet once a week in Seaver Hall, where Seamus offered a safe haven in his classroom and seemed to coax the poems out of us. While preparing my remarks for today, I managed to unearth a notebook from English JV. <laughs> Reading through my hand-scrawled notes, I was reminded how Seamus's poetic grasp spanned the centuries and the continents. The poems he discussed ranged from Sir Thomas Wyatt to Robert Lowell. We didn't feel overwhelmed by Seamus's knowledge, but fueled by it. He stretched our minds and our imaginations. In the first class, Seamus suggested we keep a commonplace book. He said, it is an important habit to have. Let the granary fill up. Extend your instinctive sense of things into articulating them. Let it be your survival kit. It is directly and indirectly related to the life and art of the writer. Each week, we would workshop student poems. Seamus also would guide us through close readings of poems by the great masters. He brought in Philip Larkin's High Windows, T.S. Eliot's Journey of the Magi, Elizabeth Bishop's The Art of Losing, and drafts of William Butler Gates's Cool Park, 1929. He offered us suggestions for writing prompts, or notions, suggesting we attempt an Ars Poetica, an Obad, an Echo Poem, a Villanelle, a Litany. Many of the things Seamus discussed in class still reverberate with me. He talked about the process of memory and how it may be recalled without saying, I remember. Seamus also said, a constant in poetry and prose is the actuality of feeling. The subject must be your own. Technique comes afterward. He talked about dramatizing the self into myth or into another character. 
He questioned, how do you escape out of your experience into something greater beyond it? Because of Seamus' voice and his delivery, every poem he read entranced. Seamus was kind, soft-spoken, and he created an atmosphere of trust and community around the table. It was always a joy to be in his presence. What I remember most vividly is meeting with Seamus one-on-one -on -one to discuss the work. In 1979, Seamus had a subterranean office below Lamont Library in Cusey. <coughs> he was using Robert Fitzgerald's study during Fitzgerald's sabbatical. We would present portfolios to him, and he then would comment on our poems. At that time, as a sophomore, I would write a poem and then think I was finished with it. Seamus gently nudged me to realize that I had to work on the poem and craft it. During one of our initial conferences in QZ, Seamus said, why don't you go to Houghton Library and look up Yeats's manuscripts? I followed Seamus's advice and went to Houghton, where I discovered how extensively Yeats revised. That moment influenced the rest of my life as a writer. I extended, I revised um, copiously, and it also awakened in me a passion for Yeats. I went on to graduate school where I wrote my default dissertation, in fact, on Yeats's manuscripts. I again had the privilege of studying with Seamus in his English SBR poetry workshop when he returned to Harvard in 1982 as a visiting professor. And just a little memory from that class is I remember um, I was working on a poem uh, called Oklahoma Home, and Seamus said that the poem begins after the first stanza, which now brings to mind um, the aesthetic behind Seamus's poem, Scaffolding, and how I had to take down the scaffolding in order to discover that poem. Studying with Seamus was a highlight of my time in college. I'm ever grateful to him for his wisdom and guidance, his generosity of spirit, and as he once put it, referring to his own teachers, for quickening my love of poetry. The critic Richard Eder wrote, Heaney exercises poetry's power to proclaim truth and the artist's power to make us know that it, that it is a truth we can't be without. Throughout my life, I have turned to Heaney's poems for their deep truths and profound sense of humanity. The poems are touchstones in my daily life. As a mother, I envision the same closeness with my son as he describes in Clarence's Five, his sonnet about a mother and son folding sheets, coming close again by holding back. Art presupposes life. When I listen to the radio, I think of the litany of shipping news in Gladmore Sonnet 7. I look at the bookshelves in a new light when I read the bookcase. And of course, all the incomparable love poems, such as The Otter and The Underground, to name a few. As in those days when I listen to his voice in the workshop, I am entranced on the page by the sound of Heaney's poems, the jubilation of speech, articulation of emotion, how he will draw the strings so tightly with such thrumming, those Anglo-Saxon hard-pressed syllables, the pressure of language, the tautness of the line, how each syllable matters, has such intensity. I am constantly compelled by Heaney's word hoard. 
I would like to conclude by reading a favorite poem, one of many, by Seamus Heaney. I am particularly struck by this poem, The Skylight, because of the turn it takes, how it lifts off the ground, delivers us with a miracle, converting the ordinary into the marvelous. Uh, this poem is from Seeing Things, and it's part of the, the sonnet sequence, Glanmore Revisited, number seven, The Skylight. You were the one for skylights. I opposed cutting into the seasoned tongue and groove of pitch pine. I liked it low and closed, its claustrophobic nest up in the roof effect. I liked the snuff dry feeling, the perfect trunk lid fit of the old ceiling. Under there, it was all hutch and hatch. The blue slates kept the heat like midnight thatch. But when the slates came off, extravagant sky entered and held surprise wide open. For days, I felt like an inhabitant of that house where the man, sick of the palsy, was lowered through the roof, had his sins forgiven, was healed, took up his bed, and walked away. Thank you so much. century. <laughs> Early soundings of globalization were beginning to be heard around Cambridge every spring, which happened to be when Heaney returned to join his fellow itinerant bards, Derek Walcott and Joseph Brodsky, in raising the spirit level of American poetry. I'm grateful for this chance to celebrate what was once an annual rite. Long before there were hedge funds, there were hedge schools. <laughs> Those singular Irish institutions of instruction outside the academy. One such was located far from the self-regarding gaze of Mother Harvard, <laughs> um, near Inman, on Magnolia Street, near Inman Square, of the second floor apartment of Lynn Foch and Sven Burkerts. There, our syllabus was life, our required text in the world. In place of Irish grammar, we had literature with a special focus on Irish poetry and single malt. Preferably Yeats, preferably Jameson's. Two frequent lecturers at these intimate sessions were Seamus and Mari Heaney. Occasionally, Derek Walcott stopped by to clarify a fine point about syncopation in Caribbean or Elizabethan literature. Homework was done on the spot and might involve scatting a Shakespeare sonnet Others would try to identify through the gossamer of random syllables. Rhythm will out. More often than not, the master's sentimento showed through. These were fine evenings of literary mayhem, where the games also included a pantomime called The Deaths of Poets in Hand Gestures. <laughs> For instance, here's John Berryman. <laughs> Discussing the work of contemporaries, the cruelest thing I ever heard Seamus say about a peer was, one thinks of Homer. <laughs> no more needed saying. Heaney the man embodies the virtues of the verse in much the same way as his poetry echoes the potencies of the world. 
In him, genius wasn't severed from those essential human qualities of warmth, generosity, and loyalty, without which we're hardly worthy of the name. His presence in person and on the page was and remains a summons to attention. An evening with the Heenies, whose circles were vaster than any I've ever encountered since, yet who always seemed to have room for one more, inevitably ended in singing. In their company, no one was allowed to hide or play the wallflower. All had to participate. And when your turn came, the preference was for a tune that echoed something of your origins, though you could always dodge the requirement by reciting a poem. Then there was the afternoon, the circle squared, Ted Hughes, and one had the untranslatable experience of hearing how Stonehenge might sound if rocks could speak. <laughs> I once said to someone, maybe Heaney himself, that Seamus has the uncanny ability to make you feel comfortable in your own home. This, this isn't to suggest, however, that his art is in any way safe. Indeed, a large part of my attraction to it was that it was anything but, and Heaney's own antennae vibrated with particular responsiveness to signals from troubled and intemperate zones. In the spread and gnarl of Heaney's work, there can be a subtle snarl and a glint of blade keeping us rightly on edge. As the child of immigrants who had fled Eastern Europe after World War II, I tuned in with particular attention to the reverberations of a past that was troublingly familiar, maybe because it was steeped in troubles of its own. In his influential essay, The Impact of Translation, Heaney observed, we who live and have our being in English know that our own recent history of consumerist freedom and eerie nuclear security seems less authentic to us than the tragically tested lives to, of those who have lived beyond all this fiddle. And poets living in England, poets in English, have felt compelled to turn their gaze east and have been encouraged to concede that the locus of greatness is shifting away from their language. At the same time, he concludes by noting that this poetry of witness was oddly resuscitative, thus finding hope where I had reckoned only despair. It remains to be seen how our poetry responds to the fact that we now have our own gulags to account for, housing, among others, Bradley Manning. I once asked him what united him with two poets to whom he was bound in friendship, Tom Gunn and Ted Hughes, and he replied, La Violencia. Different kinds of violence in all three poets call for different responses, of course. In Heaney's case, the oblique approach managed to hit the mark square with verse that satisfied the demands of conscience while fulfilling the expectations of art. My charge today is to say a few words about the prose writer, though, of course, I first came to him through the poetry. What's striking, though, is the continuity between the two. He is as subversive in his uh, prose as he is in his verse. His essays about the great poets of the world never feel like writing about literature in quotations, but rather like vital human communication, the proverbial message in a bottle, the news from somewhere, the hunted news that stays news ranging around the globe and across time to negotiate the tension between suffering and song, they simultaneously offer a crash course in the high moments in the history of poetry. I'd like to offer just two more examples. Writing about Christopher Marlowe, he notes, 
I remain convinced by what my own reading experience tells me, namely, that some works transmit an immediately persuasive signal and retain a unique staying power over time. The works continue to combine the sensation of liberation with that of consolidation. Having once cleared a new space on the literary and psychic ground, they go on to offer at each rereading the satisfaction of a foundation being touched and the excitement of an energy being released. He comments on how a generation recognizes that they are in the presence of one of the great unfettered events which constitute a definite stage in the history of poetry. He may have been speaking about himself. He further observes, there's always a kind of homeopathic benefit for the reader in experiencing the shifts and extensions which constitute the life of a poem. An exuberant rhythm, a display of metrical virtuosity, some rising intellectual ground successfully surmounted, Experiencing things like these gratifies and furthers the range of the minds and bodies' pleasures and helps the reader to obey the command, nos ipsu, know thyself. Without trespassing on Arlovian turf, Heaney was yet no stranger to the Bohemian Grove, where he seemed as, e as at ease as he was high-flying with dukes and earls. I remember running into him late one night at a party in a slightly disreputable, smoke-filled, fourth-floor, one-bedroom walk-up in a dubious part of town. <laughs> he and Mari had just arrived. They were in high spirits and ready to engage the thick crowd. They might have been slightly better decked out than some of the others, but they blended in swiftly. Seamus apologized for arriving late. How had his evening been going? Oh, very nicely, very nicely. Where had they been? Oh, dinner. Yes? With whom? Oh, the Emperor and Empress of Japan. <laughs> oh, and so they sailed into the rabble and happened to be there. My final example of his rectifying prose comes not from one of the published essays, but rather from one of the best exchanges I've ever heard during a Q&A. It occurred at the end of a lecture when someone from the audience asked Seamus how he understood Joyce's evolution as a writer. I thought he was gonna go there last night, happily he did not. <clears throat> he answered off the cuff. With Dubliners and Portrait of the Artist as a young man, Joyce was learning his instrument, which just happened to be the language of the colonizers. In Ulysses, he wanted to show the British just what could be done with their language. <laughs> and in Finnegan's wake, he wanted to remind them that theirs was just one stream in an ocean of the world's tongues. Because, I might add, the proper government of the tongue is the tongue set free. The freest speech always contains a kind of poetry. And as Heaney remarked, poetry is its own vindicating force. In his person and in his poetry, he brought the laws of conscience back to a language that seems anxious to reduce it to a mere epiphenomenon, a coincidence of brainwaves, rather than the kind of implanted magnetic north by which to steer. In Heaney, vision fuses with craft, forging a vessel that buries safely past Circe's enchanted isles all the way home. Because his imaginings 
have been fully engaged with the gross universe. He hasn't had to recant, Ala Wallace Stevens, whose chilling question to himself in his late poems is, have I lived a skeleton's life as a disbeliever in reality? Heaney continues to uphold a grudgingly affirming flame against the ever-present gloom, a torch of tongues to sing back the night, rendered fraternal by the words lambency. His poems and essays remain capable of infusing us with a sense, with a sense of tenable impossibilities, lurking in every moment and in every one with the wit to notice. I don't think I ever understood as intensely what Pound meant when he wrote about gathering from the air a live tradition, as they did that afternoon at Cool Park in Ireland, when Seamus led a few of us, first to Yeats's Tower, then to that open, nippled lake on which drifted half a dozen swans, no more disturbed by the light drizzle of the salt day than we. I didn't realize that Seamus was going to be here, so now I'm also sort of terrified but very grateful that um, I can just testify to how, how important you and your work and your presence um, in my memory and in the world have been. Um, and I think that we are speaking for a great many other people. Um, I know that as Elise was talking about having been Seamus' student, I had the feeling of um, vague jealousy, not because our experiences were different, but because they were so similar. And you always have the feeling, you know, that this is only for me. But um, I think it's just a, you know, just an indication of the largeness um, and the generosity that, that we've all been talking about. And also, I feel that the moral vision that comes up in, in you know, collections like North is also an extension of that warmth and empathy that um, we felt in the classroom and that we feel um, in, in any context in which um, James he and his voice are present. Um, I remember being a 20-year-old in a poetry workshop at Harvard and um, feeling <coughs> ennobled by the degree of seriousness with which uh, Professor Heaney uh, approached our work and our interest in the craft of poetry. Um, poetry was still something that I wanted and I wanted to understand, and I knew that somehow I wanted to be able to make, but it was also still largely a mystery. Um, and so part of my, my wish to, to, to be in the class was simply to feel like I was closer to someone who knew what it was that I was seeking out. I, I, I took the class because I remember very dis distinctly being in uh, the second semester of a sophomore survey English course that I decided to take because I had decided to be an English major, because I knew that somehow, some way, I wanted to try and become a writer, whatever that meant. And um, finally, in the spring, we read the poem Digging in the anthology that we had, and suddenly all of the, the work that I'd been bringing to wanting to understand the language of literature and wanting to have something that I immediately knew how to invest in and, and just describe to others um, was, was just kind of clarified and it was done for me in the poem. You know, it begins very simply, between my finger and my thumb, the squat pen rests, snug as a gun, um, open my eyes and ears to something that had seemed a little bit hazy and, and distant. And I, I learned from that poem that by looking at something seemingly inconsequential, perhaps, closely enough, 
it can literally transform and reveal something that you didn't realize you knew or understood or held. And I decided that that's what poetry was. Poetry was looking at the world, and it didn't have to be in grand ways, um, looking at what is literally at hand and, and listening to it uh, in such a way that it could begin to speak back to you in a language you didn't even know that you possessed. And it was so magical and such a conundrum that uh, the self could teach the self something that I, I felt hooked. So I, I put myself in that classroom and um, with probably 10 or, or 15 other students. And every week we would bring in our poems, which I think for about half of us were really bad Shakespeare imitations. <laughs> um, and he ennobled that, that, you know, that desire, um, that, that like brazen shamelessness. Um, by, by guiding us gently toward a sense of, of the voices that might help us to find our own voices. Um, and I'm, I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful for those conferences where he might take out a pen and say, what do you think about this word, you know? And, and to think that she just would be circling one word in a page of words that I had written um, meant that that word was important and that I could make it more important. And that, that was a, a wonderful gift. Um, I. I was a junior during the first workshop that I was enrolled in. And between my junior and senior years, um, my mother had um, had cancer that came out of remission. So I was dealing with a lot of, um, I guess, the anticipatory grief of trying to figure out what it would feel like to lose someone. And I didn't know how to say that, and I wasn't writing about that, and I don't even think I was talking about it. But somehow that was, um, becoming something that sat beneath the surface of the poems that I was trying to write, and something that sometimes I would um, feel activated by a poem that, that seemed to speak clearly and openly to grief and loss. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about one of the poems in um, the sonnet sequence, Clearances, in a minute. But um, I remember that spring, and I had a heavy heart. And I, I our last class, uh, Seamus took us to a Portuguese restaurant in Somerville for dinner, and we were all sitting at this big table, feeling like important adults, and maybe there was even wine involved. And um, it was a joyful night, you know, it was jovial. And um, he, he, you know, not only does he have the gift of making you feel welcome in your own home, but he also makes you feel like you're the interesting person at the table. I remember he was asking us about our lives and our plans, and um, I think all of us knew who we were in the presence of, but it was hard to find a way of, of uh, asking the right questions, and somehow that discomfort went away just by the, the warmth that he brought to the to the evening. I remember the end of that night. Um, I just didn't know how to say it, but I just wanted to know if everything was going to be all right. I was going to graduate. I had no plan. I knew I had to go back home to be with my family, and I just I didn't. I, I think I just looked bereft, and I, I was standing there, and he said, "It's okay. Everything's going to be okay." And I, I took that home with me um, as a, you know, kind of promise from, from beyond. Um, I, also, I also had given him uh, copies of some of the books that I, I had of his, and, and um, later I read the inscriptions, and the inscription in, um, I believe it was in my copy of Seeing Things, which was, I think, my favorite of his books at the time, was a quote from Yeats, and it said, and wisdom is a butterfly and not a gloomy bird of prey. And I remember looking at that again and again when I really needed it over the next um, the next year. I want to close by reading. A, uh, I've been working on some prose that has to do with um, my mom and my family. But there's a, a moment in which um, Seamus's poetry 
becomes helpful. So um, I'll close by reading this. Alone in my room, by my window overlooking the rooftops and the low hills that were wet and green in the distance, reading poems to myself became a kind of ritual. The slim volumes I brought home with me from college offered me a sense of continuity between the life I'd begun to lead on my own and the life I'd been drawn back into upon returning home. Every time I set foot in my room, it was though I were chasing the handful of poets I'd come to know while I was away. Chasing because I didn't want to let them get away. I didn't want them to swerve out of my grasp. I was certain they'd want to escape, given how little I knew how to say and how little there was here to command their attention. Those winter afternoons, upstairs with the pack of my most necessary poets, and she was, he was first on that list, uh, were teaching me something about what it felt like to try and regard the totality of something I'd only ever known in part. A life, they told me, is made of what happens and what is lost. Looking back, we learn to name those things, to see and understand them. We hold them for a minute, looking first with innocent, untrained eyes. But if we hang there for a while longer, we can step into a different kind of gaze, one capable of seeing what is absent, longed for, what has been willed away or simply forgotten. There's a sonnet sequence called Clearances in Heaney's book, The Hall Lantern, that I found myself returning to again and again. It's an elegy for his mother. I had a visceral love for, of one particular sonnet about the two of them peeling potatoes while the other family members were away at Sunday Mass. I suppose it reminded me of all the days when I was my mother's tiny satellite, accompanying her everywhere, safe and happy at her side. But the poem that resonated most mysterious for me, mysteriously for me was the sonnet that closes the sequence. I thought of walking round and round a space, utterly empty, utterly a source, where the decked chestnut tree had lost its place in our front hedge above the wallflowers. The white chips jumped and jumped and skided high. I heard the hatchet's differentiated, accurate cut, the crack, the sigh and collapse of what luxuriated through the shocked tips and wreckage of it all. Deep planted and long gone, my coeval chestnut from a jam jar in a hole. Its heft and hush become a bright nowhere, a soul ramifying and forever silent, beyond silence listened for. What did it mean to be both empty and a source? Was there something I housed, or might one day house, something the loss of my mother would enable me to give? Or was it her loss that was the source of something? Would something worth having eventually spring from it? I thought sometimes of how I'd chosen to look up in the first moments after her death. I made a pact with myself that I would, wanting to show her my face, to tell her I believed she was on her way, as she'd assured us she would be. I turned up my face to that bright nowhere, wanting to feel what it housed, wanting to show that I knew it housed not just something but my mother, my source. What hurt so much in those months after her death was exactly what Heaney's poem knew how to name, that my gaze in those moments had been pointed up toward a place beyond my discerning, a place I'd never hear or reach as, or know as long as I was myself. But the poem didn't just lament that aspect of loss. It created a conundrum of presence and largeness, 
a realness more real than the absolutes we live by. A soul ramifying and forever, silent beyond silence listened for. Such language consoled me, and it beckoned me to the page, pushed me to see whether I might be capable of writing truths like that into being, truths that would prove better than the ones that eluded or exhausted me from one moment to the next in this new life, even if the only one to read or to believe or to need them in the first place would be me. So I want to say publicly thank you so much. I was asked to sort of summarize what we've heard, uh, and since I've just heard it, it'll be partial. <laughs> but, uh, in any case, when I was listening to Frank the Dark talk, I think I was immediately struck by was um, how Frank was, in, in a way, talking about the difference between uh, political commitments and political emotions, and how Seamus is very much a man who writes about political emotions. Um, and then in Elise's and Tracy's really marvelous talks, uh, I was struck by. Um, not only the sense of a kind of generous teacher, extremely knowledgeable, but also a man who uh, took everybody seriously and knew how to impart that uh, without any kind of uh, creepy condescension. <laughs> um, and then, in terms of what Oswald was said, having been many of these, uh, by the way, that fourth floor apartment was Melvin Chuck's apartment. <laughs> uh, but I was struck by what Oscar was talking about in terms of translation, you know, how we live uh, our lives uh, in these little isolated uh, language bubbles and uh, the things that are going on in other languages uh, need to be translated uh, so that we can actually inhabit uh, bigger worlds. So, how did I do it? I was asked to speak personally, so what I'm going to do is uh, tell a string of little anecdotes uh, that tie to what Elise, uh, Frank, uh, Oswald, and Tracy have said will make up all the kind of complex knot. And so um, I'm going to start with a few qualities about Seamus uh, that for me feel like bedrock. First, the gentle self-mockery and roguish good humor, but also the colloquial eloquence and sense of kindred feeling that pervades Seamus's conversation is such that you feel smarter, funnier, and more genuinely alive whenever you're in the same room with him. At that same Portuguese restaurant you were at, Tracy, and speaking of some Portuguese sausages set aflame, <laughs> Seamus said, now these sausages are sausages of the mind. <laughs> in a car, stopped at a stoplight when we saw the curve of a heart silhouetted against the window shade, Seamus said, it looks just like a seahorse. In speaking of the complexities of friendship, Seamus recently quoted the famous, Yates, uh, famous lines from Yeats, think where man's glory most begins and ends, and say that my glory was I had such friends. And then Seamus said, of course, the corollary is also true. 
<laughs> Think where man's glory most begins and ends, and say that my trouble was <laughs> I had some friends. <laughs> and in a totally different register, I remember speaking to him about the death of my father, in which my dad's body, long after my father wanted to keep on living, simply refused to give up. Seamus nodded and said, with great accuracy of feeling, Oh, I know, I know, the hateful strength of the dying. <laughs> and on a foggy morning, when we were out walking in Dublin, he said, It's a soft day. Another of Seamus's qualities is his gift, as Tracy and uh, Elisa pointed out, is his gift for putting younger people at ease and even offering them immediate terms of equality. He's never played the Immens Grease, the Laureate, the Literary Lion. As a man and as a poet, he took to heart what Michael McClaverty once told him, quote, to hell with overstating it. Don't have your veins bulging in your bureau. <laughs> the next quality sounds simple, but in a way it comprehends all the others. Seamus always shows up. He shows up as a friend, as an artist, and if he's been invited round at 7 o'clock, he's there at 7 o'clock, if not before. Now, I'm not saying that punctuality is an absolute virtue. It can be disconcerting if you consider yourself a fashionably late host. <laughs> but in Seamus's case, his inner clock is set to five of, not five past. That clock keeps a strict accounting with himself, but it's unhassled and unhassling if you yourself happen to be late. And this tolerance is emblematic of his love for the quirks and other people's characters. Seamus once told me how David Hammond, the Irish singer and documentary filmmaker, called him early one morning and said, Hello, Seamus, are you awake? <laughs> And when Seamus said, no, David, I'm still asleep, <laughs> David said, undeterred, well, are you awake now? <laughs> so, several years back, Seamus and I are walking through a Jewish poetry festival at Boston University when I notice his gait slowing and a kind of hyper-vigilance taking over, a tightening and a hunkering down into himself. And he said, in a level voice, as if commenting on the weather, there's been a bomb scare. And indeed, there had been. Police cars fumed under the trees, a bomb squad was standing by, and a moment later an ambulance with its lights flashing drove up. After the event, which went ahead as planned, once it became clear that there was no bomb, I asked Seamus how we'd know. Ah, well, he said. You get a sense of these things. And then I saw that the police weren't moving in, but standing back. I also recall the first time I visited Seamus in Dublin. It was after his mother died, and he'd written fairly recently the beautiful sequence of sonnets about his mother's death, as both Tracy and these mentioned, Clarence's. I was up early, reading in the living room, when Seamus came down a little later in his undershirt. Mari, Seamus's wife, who ought to be the subject of her own tribute for the ease and 
eloquence of translations of Irish legends entitled Over Nine Waves, as well as her genius for being at the center for most of her life of the music of what happens. Anyway, Mari gave me the poem still marked up with little changes in thick black ink from Seamus's pen. Such heart and skill and reliable sensibility. They impressed you with their greatness, not by their obscurity or fierceness or sonority or by being million dollar worded, but possessing the distinction of good conversation. As Robert Lowell, Seamus's good friend, as we heard last night, once wrote in another context, quote, I do not mean mannered conversation. The humor the English are said to inherit or get in their schools but a distinction that a man must have in him, for he can never fake it or buy it. Later that same day, Seamus and I drove out to his cottage in Blandmore. We established a kind of routine. Him upstairs in his study, working away, translating Aeneas's journey to the underworld, which he's talked about yesterday. The translation that would begin one of his most beautiful books, Seeing Things, in part about the death of his father, <clears throat> and he downstairs, trying to scribble what I could, but aware of Shayla's upstairs, muttering to himself as he composed. The cottage was very basic, very cold, slate roof, clanking latch, and it projected its own Newman. It was, as Seamus said of the sausages, a cottage of the mind. <laughs> Through it all, I felt the kind of wonder that such a house could exist, that I was sleeping in it, and that Seamus was immensely gracious throughout in allowing my presence. And even though you had to wear your coat all day to keep from shivering, I loved how the stony up-againstness of the place seemed to say, well, look, you may not be exactly comfortable, but go ahead anyway. Make yourself at home. Every afternoon, I'd head off for a three or four hour walk, and when I came back in the evening, We'd sit outside if there was a bit of sun or go over the lines he'd rung out that day. He knocked them off 10 to 15 lines at a time, and I loved how he treated it as just a job of work. Nothing fussy or angsty in his process. It's just a severe and undiluted sense of what was up to the mark and what hadn't yet arrived. And then in the evening, we boil potatoes, fry up some fish, uh, talk, listen while the radio played, drink a whiskey or a Guinness, or most nights both, <laughs> and then take ourselves off to bed. I recall the afternoon we first arrived, Seamus was putting together a new edition of a selected poems, I think, and he invited me to go over the table of contents with him. It was a perfect day, warmish, clear, getting on in the afternoon so you could start to feel the chill gathering. We sat in wooden chairs with a wheelbarrow between us as a kind of improvised cable. Each of us holding in our hands a sheaf of poems. Seamus asked me to put the ones I thought should be included into the wheelbarrow. <laughs> when I asked him if there were any principles guiding him in his selections, he shrugged, laughed, and said with perfect one-downmanship as opposed to one-upmanship, oh, just the ones I like. After dinner, on another evening, Seamus asked me if I had any plans to put together a book of essays 
since he knew I'd written a good deal of critical prose, I shrugged and said something like, well, that would be nice, but I suppose I needed a theme. At this, Seamus smiled and said with a kind of roguish self-mockery, oh, for God's sake, Slay, stop putting on airs. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need a theme, you just need a title. <laughs> <laughs> I remember on our last night together, we took a drive to the manor house of Garrick Brown, founder of Cladow Records and a champion of traditional Irish music. The house was set in a moody spot next to a black lake and at the very bottom of a deep valley in the Wicklow Mountains. To my eye, it was as grand and otherworldly as it was iambic and crepuscular. <laughs> But for Seamus, it was just the home of a friend. A man who might meet a few years later when I was visiting Seamus just after he was elected to give the Oxford lectures in poetry. But that night, Brown wasn't at home, and Seamus and I walked to the lake and skipped stones for a bit, and then fooled around, throwing sticks into the lake, heaving them like javelins, horsing around, really. And if there's an image that I retain from those days, it's of Seamus in an old green sweater with holes in it, clutching in his hand a stick that he's poised to throw as I stand next to him with a stick that I'm also poised to throw, and Seamus giving me a look that says, I know that we know how ridiculous we look, but let's do this anyway. And so we did. Since that moment, the ripples have been lapping outward for close on to 30 years. And since we're lucky enough to have Seamus and Mari in the room, I'd like to ask them if they would like to take a bow. And given that an event like this is a little bit like coming into a room, seeing somebody who looks like you from the back, <laughs> then when they turn around, seeing, oh, I sort of recognize that face, if they'd like to add anything in the end. Thank you very much. friends who brought me alive and kept me alive. 
And now, years later, uh, 1996, I more or less stopped that job. So it's almost 20 years later. And it's very, very moving to be at the center of such affection and praise, I have to say. Um, the, the talk about such friends, as Ed said, uh, I think of where my glory was begins and ends. Same way, glory was by such, I had such friends. For once, I, it's a problem for me to have had so many friends, yes. <laughs> because, uh, well, you can see, such, such grace and such readiness and generosity. There is <coughs> a Latin phrase, <coughs> which I'm sure you know, which says, Nemo dat quod non habet. Nobody gives what they haven't got themselves. So what was being given out today in terms of kindness, praise, gifts, art knowledge, art knowledge, as Jesus would have called it, um, that knowledge that uh, they have, every one of them, what was given by them. So I'm deeply moved by the whole event, unforgettable. Was I married to this paranormal? <laughs> <laughs> but I was. <laughs> and what they said is true, even after 48 years of marriage, it is true, but uh, what you give, you get back. And that's what happened in a most wonderful way on this platform today. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.